Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll look at the first 17 verses today and just a little bit at the rest. Christianity is unlike any other religion in the world. All other religions say, do this or that, and do it well enough, and for long enough, and perhaps you will gain God's favor. But the gospel says you can never do enough to gain God's favor, but Christ Jesus has done everything perfectly. Then he gave his life on the cross for your failures, and God raised him from the dead to prove that that was enough. So abandon your hope in yourself and what you're doing, and rest in Christ who forgives your sins and gives you eternal life. All true Christians, whatever labels they wear, all true Christians believe that. That's the gospel. There is no other way to be saved. But unfortunately, when it comes to living that out, many seem to lose their way. Many say that the Christian life is really all about doing this or that well enough or long enough to keep God's favor. But the Bible teaches that we live out this new life the same way we received it. We keep on believing that Jesus died and rose again in our place. And we learn to live as those who being joined to Christ are now dead to sin, dead to the law, but alive to God and raised with Christ to walk in newness of life in the power of his spirit. Now that's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are teaching us. On the one hand, these chapters are terribly complex. You find any really good preacher and look at his his sermons and he will probably take 15 sermons at least and maybe 20 to get through these three chapters. They're terribly complex. The careful theological treatise perfectly woven together. But on the other hand, they are also wonderfully simple. The same old gospel that we believed in order to be saved, we now believe in order to live every day trusting the Savior. We already flew through chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're going to fly through chapter 8 today. In fact, it's long enough. We're not even going to try to get it to the end, although we'll make some mention of the last half. Let me read the first 17 verses, and then we'll talk about it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened, by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. (coughs) Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what their nature desires, but those who live according to, to with in accordance with the Spirit, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. 
The, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit of life is, is peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, <coughs> and if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if we live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, but, but by this, if by the Spirit you put to death the, the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And we'll stop there. <clears throat> I'd like to share three things. We're not going to pack every word, every phrase of this. There's no way we could do that. But let me share three truths that I think are found here that are the gist of this. <clears throat> the first is this. Jesus sets us free from sin. Jesus sets us free from sin. You know, there are few words in the Bible as comforting as the first phrase of verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once we were defiled and guilty, but God sent his son to the cross to pay the debt of sin that we owed, and now those who trust him are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. As David wrote in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. But as great as that truth is, that is not actually the point of Romans chapter 8. Earlier in Romans, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, Paul talked about guilt being removed, about being justified by faith in Christ. But here the Spirit is teaching us not about Jesus saving us from the guilt of sin, but about Jesus setting us free from sin itself, from the power of sin, from our addiction to sin, from the patterns and practice of sin. To put it in theological terms, early in Romans, Paul talked about being justified, about God changing our status in an instant from guilty to righteous in Christ Jesus. But now he's teaching about us being sanctified, about God changing our living so that our practice matches our new status in Christ. Or to put it in street terms, to people, to, to, to help people uh, and forgive people for their drug-crazed behavior is, is, is a wonderful act of grace. But what they need is not just forgiveness, they need deliverance 
from their addiction. Jesus came not just to forgive, but to free us from our addiction to sin. In this text, sin is not thought of primarily as a stain on our record, which condemns us, but as an active power inside of us, down in the depths of our being, which constantly is trying to destroy us. Remember last week in the verses just prior to this, Romans 7 talked about sin in those terms, in verse 15 and following. I do not understand what I do, for I, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that is good as it is, is it is no longer I myself that do it, who do it, it is sin living in me. But Jesus sets us free from that sin. Both the guilt of sin and the governing power of sin working in us. That promise of deliverance permeates these first few verses. Verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. According to my best Greek lexicon, in this instance, the word law refers to an abstract governing power. So Christ has given us the governing power of the spirit of life to set us free from the governing power of our sinful flesh. We see it again in verse 3. By sending his own son, he condemned sin in the flesh. John Stott points out that one might have expected Paul to write, God condemned sins in Jesus in order that we might escape condemnation. And of course God did that. But the point here is that Jesus came to condemn that powerful working of sin in us that governing power of sin that threatens to control us. Now, why is sin so powerful in us? Especially when we understand that this is all written to Christians. Well, it's powerful because even inside us Christians, sin has an ally, a mole, a traitor, our own sinful flesh. Remember, John tells us that the flesh is one of those things that opposes us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Galatians 5, Paul gets very specific as he describes what that flesh produces. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. All those tendencies are programmed in our spiritual DNA since the fall into sin. So all this governing power of sin has to do is to entice our flesh, to promise to give it what we want. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a good one, so let me explain it again. Every year, when the weather gets cold and people start bringing charcoal grills inside to warm up because the power went off, we hear people dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. Why do people die of carbon monoxide poisoning? Well, here's the explanation. The hemoglobin in your blood, which carries oxygen to your cells throughout your body, has a hundred times greater affinity to carbon monoxide molecules than it does to oxygen molecules. 
So no matter how much oxygen, good, fresh, wonderful oxygen there is in the air, if there's any carbon monoxide present, your hemoglobin in your blood will latch onto it, and it will not let go. And when it does, there's no room to carry oxygen to your cells, and you die of oxygen starvation. Hypoxia, it's called. Now that's how the power of sin works. It exploits our natural affinity for the things of the flesh. That's why God's law cannot ever make us holy. It can show us how sinful we are, but it has no power to change us. That's what we read in, chapter, in verse 3. The law was powerless in that it was weakened by our sinful nature. But for this Christ came to set us free from this tyrant called sin. Oh, but the power of sin and the sinfulness of our flesh don't just magically disappear when we come to trust Jesus. So now what? What do we do? That brings us to our second point. Put on your new identity in Christ. Put on your new identity in Christ. On street corners everywhere, at least if you drive as far as Bellingham, you'll see them. We see homeless people begging for money. Suppose one day someone gave them a lottery ticket that proved to be a winning number. When they went and checked it out, they were instant millionaires. We might think, wow, that would be an easy change from homeless to a millionaire. That's not true. For that person has a grocery cart sitting out there full of all of his treasures, which are worth nothing to anyone else, but for his whole life those have been treasures. What does he do with those? And this person lives in a world of homeless beggars. Those are all of his friends, and they have certain expectations And perhaps he's supporting an addiction which got him to that point in the first place. You see, it would be difficult for a person to transition, to abandon the life that he knows, poor and destructive as it is, to abandon that life and begin to live to be a successful, productive citizen. It would not just instantly happen. So it is with our new identity in Christ. We were dead in sin. We we were dead in sin. Now we're dead to sin. We were dead to God. And now we're alive to the Spirit. We are free of the power of sin within and dwelt, dwelt with the power of the Spirit within. And we're called to live now as that new person that we have become in Christ. To put on our new identity in Christ. Now, at first glance, that sounds easy. We're told just two things to do, two ways to put on this new identity. First of all, verse 4 and 5, live according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. This can't be difficult. We all live according to influences around us. We, we, We dress like others dress. We talk like others talk. We think like others think. We live according to some patterns, probably our culture. And the more we do, the more we become like that culture. So here it says, 
Don't do that anymore. Live instead according to the Spirit of God. Not according to your flesh. Not according to the world. We're to act like the Spirit of Christ acts. Not like our homeless friends act. We're to set our goals, set goals that reflect Christ's goals. Not those of our sinful desires. That's the first thing. Then the second thing we're told has to do with how we think. Verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. These days people often say, you can be whatever you believe you can be. That's a joke. It's not true. But what is true is that God calls you to practice being what he has made you to put on the new identity that he has given you in Christ. And this has to do with how you think. How you perceive of yourself. Do you perceive of yourself as God defines you? Do you dream of your life being what God has called you to be or what you've grown to love, though it's destructive? Now, these are pretty straightforward instructions. Walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh, and set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not the flesh. But in Galatians 6, a similar passage to this, shows us the intensity of that challenge. It's not just to use a little choice, we change this and that. Here in Galatians 6, we read, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, God calls us to put on our new identity, but that involves rejecting our old natural desires and ways and and, and context of our life in favor of putting on our new identity, the life of the Spirit, the new ways of living. In Romans 13, the apostles, Paul says it very bluntly. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Like we said, this sounds easy. Like we won the spiritual lottery and now we're perfect. But what makes it so intense intense, is the obstacle that we have to overcome. What is that obstacle? It's me. It's yourself. Jesus repeatedly calls us to self-denial. Six times in the gospel, he tells us to take up the cross. That is, to die. For the problem is not out there. It's in here. Our tendency to turn to our own way, to be lovers of self, to persist in our self-willed way. In his book, The Shadow of the Cross, the Reformed Baptist pastor, William Chantry, describes this struggle, what it looks like. He says, every step of progress in sanctification brings the Christian back to the dreadful battleground where many a tear has been shed and many a drop of blood spilled. If you are in Christ, it's a familiar scene. There before you is that grisly old enemy to spiritual progress. Standing astride the path of obedience 
is this grisly enemy named self. Self. This monster cries out daily to be served. He challenges the dominion of Christ Jesus. He opposes every devotion of time and energy and love to God. This is a strange war that we may win only by feeling in ourselves the blows we would strike. How we would love to change the scene of combat. But on every occasion, when we are serious about advancing in righteousness, we must contend with self. Self. Meanwhile, the whole world is saying, just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Now, folks, I don't know the particular traits of your heart, your flesh, whether it's lust or greed or anger or bitterness or divisiveness or pride or any other things on that list. But this I know because God tells us, you dare not just follow your heart. You must daily choose to deny the desires of your heart and walk in step with the Spirit, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit not on the things you're used to thinking, that everyone else is thinking, and that you like to think about. It matters what you choose. The Apostle Paul summarizes all this in verse 13, 12 and 13. Brothers, we have an obligation. It's not to the sinful nature to live according to it, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Put on your new identity in Christ. If you're a Sunday school teacher, we find in our Sunday school material that there are lots of different ways that kids learn, and you know this yourself. Some of us learn well by listening to a lecture, reading a book. But some people learn better by role-playing, by pretending to be or to believe something in order to understand what that's like, what that's about. Well, this life that we're called to is like role-playing, except it's not a pretend role. We are learning to put on a new identity, not because it's, 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 it's for a program or something, because this is our new identity in Christ. We no longer are the spiritual street person driven by sinful, destructive desires. We're now a child of God, forgiven and renewed by God's indwelling spirit. Learn to walk in that identity. Put on Christ. Finally, one last point. And this is the great promises that God gives, gives us. God will never forsake his children. God will never forsake his children. I probably learn more about what the Lord's like by raising my children than any other way. I always tried to make sure my kids knew that I loved them. I worked to respect them as I required them to respect me. And I tried to be diligent about being fair and just and loving. Nonetheless, I was a pretty strict father. Rules were to be obeyed and infractions met with discipline. But try as I might to be a good father, I am absolutely certain that my kids never dreamed 
the lengths to which I would have gone for them. The depths of my love and my commitment they never could have known. All of which only made me realize that if I, a frail human father, was so committed to my children, warts and all, how much more must my heavenly father love me? I would never have forsaken my kids. And neither will God forsake his children. We can't unpack all the ways that the Lord tells us this, but let's just brief these wonderful promises in this chapter. Feel the weight of God's faithfulness. In verse 9, we're reminded that we are not controlled by the flesh, but by the spirit that God has given us. In verse 10 and 11, where we're told the terrible effects of sin are nothing less than the deadness of our bodies, we're quickly reminded, but, but the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit in you, and he is able to make life come out of your dead body. In verse 15, just when our struggle may feel like a new kind of bondage, we're reminded of our new situation. You did not receive a spirit of fear that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba. That means Papa, Daddy, Father. Same that Jesus called God. Make no mistake, God will never forsake his children. And this is not just some theological notion which we try to, of which we try to convince ourselves. According to verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, even the time of our toughest struggling, our worst suffering, deep within the child of God, the Spirit reminds us, you are mine. You are mine. I love you. God will never forsake his children. Indeed, the whole remainder of this chapter, which we didn't even read, only says it over and over again. Verse 18, this present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that we're going to see, which involves the redemption of the whole creation, including these poor bodies. And verse 26, we're never alone. The spirit who dwells within us is praying, praying, praying. In words we don't understand, but words God understands is praying for. And verse 28 and 29, God, in, while we're going through all this struggle, and while we're trying to live this out, God is working every detail to perfection, to all dovetail together, to bring about glory for us. And no one will be lost in the process. In fact, we can rightly say, as in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one would dare bring a charge against God's elect. Not even Jesus, because he's the one that died for us. Indeed, as we read on to the end of the chapter in verses 37 to 39, we read that nothing, I mean nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ. God will never forsake his children No matter how it looks today, he will never forsake his own. As William Cooper wrote, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing.
on your head. This is a powerful text, weighty with instruction and brimming with encouragement. As I endure my own struggles, just like you, this gives me hope, this text. Christ is setting us free from sin. Not just its guilt, but here especially its power. He has given us his Holy Spirit to make us holy. So secondly, put on this new identity that you've been given. Choose not to ally ally yourself with the controlling power of sin that you're so used to, but with the life-giving power of the Spirit, for it matters what you choose. And finally, no matter what, we face this struggle in hope, for God will never, never, never forsake his children. That's his promise. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, so much in this chapter we can't even get our heads around it, but I pray that we wouldn't miss the main themes that we've tried to talk about today. That you've not called us, Lord, to, be, to keep being defeated by sin that's so rampant inside of us and in the world around us but that you've given us your spirit to deliver us, not just from the guilt, but from the power and the practice of sin. That you taught us, Lord, to put on Jesus, to wear this new identity until it becomes customary to us, as customary and as comfortable and as real as our old identity in sin has been. And then, Father... You've laid upon us all your wonderful promises that above and beyond all that we're doing that you are bringing us to glory and that you never forsake us. Thank you for that. Help us to keep faith with you as you have promised to keep faith with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.